as you find your seats, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James 5. We only have three more sermons in James. Um, and as this great epistle comes to an end, uh, we see so uh, much rich instruction it has for us. So much of how we uh, need God's Word to direct everything we do and everything uh, we believe. And tonight we see that in how we look at worldly riches. Worldly riches. James 5, verses 1 all the way down to verse 11 tonight. Uh, Follow as I read. James 5, starting in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have, laid, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Father, we look now to your word, uh, your living and active and all-sufficient word of truth. And so we ask that by your Spirit, you uh, make your word clear to us tonight, so that it would do a work in our hearts, humbling us where needed, Lord, shaping us where needed, challenging us where needed, and encouraging us where needed. We thank you for it. In his name, amen. $1,500. One thousand five hundred dollars. Two five hundred dollar bills. Four one hundred dollar bills. A fifty dollar bill. A twenty dollar bill. A five dollar bill and five one dollar bills. Fifteen hundred dollars. And there's another $200 where that came from every time you pass go. And plenty more to be made if you have the four railroads or maybe an early monopoly 
hopefully on the blue or the green. Monopoly money. That recognizably colored set of bills that can be, if you let it, be the currency of contention between you and your overly competitive uncle. Monopoly money. The term monopoly money has become a catchphrase, a term in and of itself. You see, when we look at Canadian money and it's all colorful, to us monochrome-minded Americans, we think that's monopoly money. That can't be real. Uh, We also use that phrase, monopoly money, for money that is devalued so much it basically means nothing. In times of war or civil unrest, when money flutters around the street and uh, people are raiding the grocery stores for free, we say that country's money is monopoly money. Monopoly money, money that is worthless, money that means nothing. Now, it would be silly to confuse monopoly money with real money, dollar bills, to try to pay for your son, right, or your olive garden with monopoly money. Go ahead and try it. I mean, it's something almost that seems like a concept for a YouTuber. Well, here in chapter 5, as James begins to wrap up his great epistle, we see the foolishness of seeing real money riches as of any value in God's kingdom. You see, in James's view, worldly wealth, what we see as real money, possessions, or power, is monopoly money in God's kingdom. Yet, our endeavors, our motives, and our goals even can be so tied to the currency of this world system, whether literal money or relational capital or social currency. And so the question is, as a Christian, how can you be here? How can you be at UCLA, faithfully studying to start a career, and then starting a career to earn money, and then earning money to reinvest it and spend it and use it. And yet as a Christian, we come to a passage like this and you need to reconcile that somehow. How do you do that? Is it just life off the grid, not spending money? Or just tithing the right amount every Sunday? Does that get you right? Uh, Maybe it's just following Dave Ramsey and not going into debt. What is the measure of a faithful Christian? What does true faith look look like as it comes to uh, how to engage this money-driven reality that we live in? Uh, Because the future may not have dollar bills, but it sure will have crypto and NFTs. And here in chapter 5, James shows us again, as he has before, uh, the upheaval, the reversal of the world's value system in light of eternity. But this time, it's a bigger, it's a wider perspective. You see, it's a perspective that doesn't just deal with money. It's a valuation of all things in light of Christ's return. It's a valuation of all things, money included, 
in light of Christ's return. Tonight, we'll see in our passage that true faith forsakes the world's riches and waits with patience for eternal riches. True faith forsakes the world's riches and waits with patience for eternal riches. We'll look at this simply in two parts. First, the danger of worldly riches. The danger of worldly riches in verses 1 through 6. Here in these first six verses, James shows us the danger of riches, how the allure of worldly wealth is antithetical to true, lasting, eternal riches in Christ. And then we'll see also the disastrous end of the road for those who hold on to earthly riches. The rich here, at least in the ancient Near Eastern context, are simply those who have more than they need. Those who have enough uh, resources to decide how they want to use those resources. And so by that very basic definition of what it means to be rich, almost everyone in this room would be considered rich. And I would argue, having been a North Campus major, uh, you're rich both in ancient Near Eastern context and in the modern context. You live well above the $2 level that most people in the world survive on. We're rich. Now, though, in James, we know by now that the rich, who are depicted as often wicked and worldly, wearing gold rings and fancy clothing and getting favoritism uh, given their way. And then we see the poor, often seen as righteous and humble somehow, almost magically, as if there's just only two groups of people in the world. Uh, But these are what we know as proverbial prototypes of their kind. You see, that is to say, when James talks about the rich and the poor, he isn't saying it's inherently wrong to have money. What he is saying is that uh, the very character and the tendencies and the temptations common to the rich and common to the poor are so very often tied to the values of this world's system, which is opposite to to God's values. Here in this passage, the rich here are, though, among God's people. How else would they be addressed in James's letter? And most likely, at least some of them claim allegiance to Jesus. They claim faith in Christ. And so James says, come now, you rich. Gather round, listen up, lend me your ear. And he gives them a rather peculiar instruction. Weep and howl. Of the 60 or so commands in the book of James, these are my favorite. Weep and howl. Cry out and mourn. The word howl is onomatopoeia. It almost gives you an imagery of uh, reminiscent of uh, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth found in eternal judgment. Weep and howl. Be aware and then respond in a visceral way to what I'm about to tell you, James says. This is a warning to the rich to be aware of their eternal destiny. 
the end of the road for the path that they're headed. This is an indictment on the rich. Now James himself is not condemning the rich to hell. He's letting God do that. Uh, But James is very simply, like he has throughout all his epistle, pointing out the inconsistency in these people's lives of someone claiming to follow Christ and then doing something otherwise. In this case, the actual proof of life that is somebody holding on tightly to worldly wealth instead of hope in God. And so this is James' indictment on the rich, his warning for us even on this side of eternity. Uh, that if these rich people continue the way that they're going, they are headed for an eternity apart from God. This is the same kind of moment that Jesus had with the rich young ruler, uh, calling him to sell all he had and give to the poor and follow him. This call to radical rejection of the world's value system and a wholehearted devotion to Jesus. And you know the story, that young man walked away from Jesus, and the text says, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Right after that, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 19, verse 23, he says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so in our text tonight, we see that very truth. James is rebuking the rich, says it will be almost impossible for you to fit through the gate to heaven with what's in your hand, your riches. And he's warning them, it is eternally ruinous to hold fast like you're doing to what the world has to offer. This is a truth we saw back in chapter 1 when we looked at the perspective of divine economy. And James sees a coming reversal in that passage of rich and poor in eternity. Well, here in the beginning of chapter 5, we see that same reversal. But now it's further down the road. It's further, it's closer to eternity. Here now, the rich won't boast in their humiliation like they do in chapter 1. They won't repent. Here, the rich are deeply entrenched in their ways. And so James shows them that eternal judgment is at the end of their path. And in these six verses, James paints a rightfully bleak picture for the future of the rich. Look at verse 1 again. He warns of the miseries that are coming upon you. Verse 5, look there. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have readied yourself for the coming judgment. Now with James and with the Bible, again, it's not that you can't be rich. James is saying it's how you handle being rich. It's how you use your earthly riches. Uh, before both God and man. Consider Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 10. This is the middle of the list of those who will not inherit uh, the kingdom of heaven. And on that list are idolaters, people who idolize things or other gods before God, or also thieves, people who take from other people because they want so much. Also on that list, the greedy 
and the swindlers, those who cheat. What's not on that list? The rich. It's how you pursue those riches, and if you have those riches, what you do to get more, and what you do with what you already have. For James, it's a question of the eternal status of one's heart. Whether the way that you handle your worldly wealth is indicative of someone who treasures, treasures Jesus above all else and finds in Him eternal security, or someone who is grasping at the world's idols for some kind of false security. And here we see that you may claim to know Christ, but your priorities uh, and your actions and your very lifestyle, particularly with how you use your riches, may deny the very Savior you say that you serve. James, within this first section, brings us three warnings about worldly riches. Three warnings about worldly riches. First, beware, beware the fleeting pleasures of worldly riches. Beware the fleeting pleasures of worldly riches. In verses 2 and 3, James points out the transient nature of of worldly wealth. Look there again. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and, your, and, they, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. This is language and concept taken straight from our Lord Jesus and His teaching. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6 and we see that truth that we should not lay up for ourselves treasures on earth look at verse 19 do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal and look at the principle in verse 21 for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Turn back to James. James takes this uh, word picture of moth-eaten and rust-destroyed material possessions. But see, he takes it a little bit further even than his half-brother Jesus uh, does in Matthew 6. You see, while Jesus teaches the disciples, uh, do not lay up your, for yourselves treasures on earth, James is able to say, with the example of the rich right in front of him, you have laid up for yourselves treasures on earth. I see that you've done this already. This is not just instruction. He's saying, I see that you've done this. This is past tense. This is what you have done. This is true of you. Now, I would say, by God's grace, tonight through his word, he is giving us this warning before we really even have much as students here, before we start our careers, as we begin this stage in life, as you contemplate what's next. Now, most of you are going to make a lot of money soon, more than you know what to do with. And some of you will make a little less than you expected. But in either case, James's warning is Jesus's warning. Don't Put your stock 
in worldly riches. Don't find ultimate value or identity, motivation, or goal in the grid of worldly wealth. James says, in fact, the very corrosion, the very rust of your riches will be evidence against you in eternity. You see, before the judgment seat of God, you will have your truckloads and storage pods of moth-eaten, rusty old, this earthly stuff, and it will be put straight into the evidence locker in eternity against your soul. Why? Because where your treasure is, there is your heart also. And so what brought you comfort and temporal happiness, what gave you satisfaction, and what formed your identity here in this life, not only will burn up in eternity, 2 Peter 3, your stuff will betray you. It will be the very evidence that you loved the things of this world. You served worldly wealth rather than loving and serving God. Matthew 6, even just a few verses later than what we just read, that says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then Jesus says, You cannot serve God and money. You must choose. You must choose an eternity, which means you must choose now. This is the transitory nature, the fleeting pleasures of riches. That in eternity, worldly wealth will corrode and disintegrate. But more importantly, those whose hearts are given in this life to these worldly riches will suffer the eternal consequence of having served money rather than God. Matthew 8, 36, uh, excuse me, Mark 8, 36, a passage we just looked at this last week with our pastor For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And I think Paul gets it right. Mason read Philippians 3 earlier, but again, indeed, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Don't lay hold of treasures here on this earth. Give it all up to follow Jesus. These things are fleeting. Christ is eternal. Secondly, in this text, uh, under the danger of worldly riches, we see a second warning. Beware the insatiable appetite of worldly riches. The insatiable appetite of worldly riches. You see, worldly riches can have this awful effect. This awful effect of creating a hunger for more. It's a thirst that cannot be quenched. And it starts small with us, right? When you're five, it's collecting all the Happy Meal toys. Right? Then it's the Yogurtland spoons and 
maybe the Starbucks tumblers. They know how to get you. But then it can turn into sneakers and jewelry, tech gadgets and guitars, and then cars if you're that kind of person. But it's not always the collecting, right? The accumulation that is the problem in and of itself. It's that wealth is an invasive species for the human heart. that begins to dominate the landscape and force all other priorities out. You see, once the ball gets rolling, we begin to do whatever it is that we need to do to get more. It's greed to the nth degree. It's avarice on steroids. Riches have this monstrous effect on our heart that multiplies the desire again and again. Look at verse 4 and we see how this looks like for these rich people. Behold, James says, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. See, these rich landowners are so obsessed with financial gain that they are withholding wages from their workers. They are robbing, they're defrauding the poor who by implication are in the same communities, in the same maybe even congregations as these rich people. And James says their, their wages are missing and they are crying out. And who hears? God Himself. The Lord of hosts Himself. Look at verse 6 and you see the strong but appropriate language James uses to describe this. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You see, these rich people, by the way, that they're withholding the source of life, their wages from these poor people, they are condemning and even in James's mind, murdering these people. It's reminiscent of the beginning of chapter 4 where we saw selfish ambition, people murdering each other, uh, being at each other's throats. But here, this is a one-sided fight. And the rich, in their insatiable appetite for wealth, are kicking the poor while they're down. The rich only get richer, and the poor only get poorer. Now the context, the framework for James's instruction here, is in Deuteronomy 24. Don't turn there, but listen to what God's law says about paying wages. Deuteronomy 24, 15. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. For he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. You see, in Deuteronomy 24, the idea there is that as God's people, your love and your concern and your provision for your brother ought to be so consistent and careful that you should pay him every day as he deserves. Otherwise, it's sin. And before you, students at Grace on Campus, so dutifully point out that you're not somebody's boss yet, that you're not quite doing the payroll for your own clinic, at least just yet, 
Consider how often you do things that you would not ordinarily do. Or how often you treat people in a way that you would not ordinarily treat them. If not for the way that you prioritize your own success. If not for the way that ultimately in your pursuit of riches, whether it be your desire to succeed in school or your competitiveness in seeking out an internship, you are feeding the voracious appetite of your greed, this insatiable hunger for self-betterment. Others will either help you get you to where you need to be or you will trample them on your way to success. All is fair in love and war, right? And so we go and get what we want and we use people to get there. And so you may not be withholding wages, but if you are far too easily willing to forsake the commitment you have to others as a Christian uh, for the sake of your own success, whether it be Christian witness or a care and concern for others or just plain old charity toward other people, then you are in danger of this insatiable appetite of riches. Any exchange of your commitment to Jesus for worldly wealth or success is feeding this monster of insatiable appetite. And as a sidebar, I believe there's something to be said here about academic integrity. You see, in a COVID Zoom sort of zero accountability environment, I wonder how many of you take quizzes in ways that you should not be taking quizzes. I wonder how many of you copy-paste and to source it up just to make it look like you did your own work. I wonder how many of you phone a friend for hints and tips when you're struggling with that code. If you're doing things that you would not otherwise do as a Christian, but it's for the sake of your success, it's for the sake of you getting a good grade or not getting left behind by everyone in your class because everyone else is doing it too. You are in danger of the insatiable appetite of worldly riches. You're being consumed by it. This too is that appetite. And so when we trade in our Christian commitments for little handfuls of cheap food, trying to satisfy this monster we might look a whole lot more like the unrighteous rich in this passage, destined for eternal misery, than we do look like the blood-bought sons and daughters of the living God. Beware the insatiable appetite of riches. And as we wrap up this first half of the passage, we see briefly a third Warning, beware the self-indulgence of worldly riches. Beware the self-indulgence of worldly riches. James points out the self-focus of the rich. And it's most poignantly found in verse 5, although found throughout the first six verses. Look at verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You see, the rich here are hoarding and they're 
piling up their wealth all for their own luxury and comfort, their own satisfaction and settledness. They're getting fat. This is all for self-sufficiency. This is all in a spirit of independence from God, a spirit of selfish ambition. We know it more as a desire to be set. Set for life. Secure. Safe. Comfortable. You see, I think right now is your head is so in your studies, you're not thinking about being rich quite yet. You think you would never be that way when you get much money. You would never be so rich that you're living in luxury. Uh, There are just way too many real world needs that you're going to have to address. I, I I would never get there. But I think if you're honest with yourself, your hopes, your dreams, your even expectations of what your career and your income and your investments will eventually do for you, take you to exactly the same spot as verse 5. This place of entitlement and comfort and independence. Let me ask you something. What's ideal case for you? Where do you see yourself financially in 10 years? Where do you see yourself kicking your feet up? What's the view like? What do you hope for? Take a picture in your mind. What do you envision? If you were to think about what your life could or should or might look like, ideal case, I think, for most of us, we would describe some kind of financially carefree, probably remote work kind of situation with a new vacation spot that work pays for every month. That kind of situation. There may be, after your studies and your preparation is said and done, and you finally land that job, and then another, and then another, because that's how your industry works, and you're moving up and accumulating and getting that bag, there may be, under all of that, in your heart, a blatant self-focus. The kind of stockpiling and hoarding we see here in James 5 that is there deep in your heart even now. Just in its infancy. See, right now you don't see that. It doesn't quite seem that aggressive of an endeavor for you right now. Right now it's just bookmarking all the things that you want to buy. Right now it's just scrolling all the pictures of the travel spots. Uh, Right now, it's just kind of surfing Zillow for fun. Uh, Right now, it's it's just the expectations you put on your boyfriend or girlfriend quietly. Right now, it's just the way that you think about what life could be in the future, comfortable, without a care in the world, and absolutely self. Focused. This is a call to worship God. 
not money or luxury or comfort. This is a call to worship your creator, not created things. This is a call to worship the giver, not the gift. So that when you have money, when you have possessions, when you have the good gifts given to you by the Father, you'll use these things in an unhesitatingly generous way that blesses others, in a way that advances the kingdom of God, in a way that reflects the stewardship you've been given. Turn to Luke 12. We need to see this, what Jesus says about the rich. Luke 12. Luke 12, starting in verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Sound familiar? He thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I think 1 Timothy 6 has a word for us, encouraging us in the positive direction. How are we rich toward God? 1 Timothy 6, as for the rich, Paul says, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Truly life. True faith forsakes the world's riches. But here we see in these two passages, uh, we steward it too. See, true faith forsakes the world's riches, but when it has the world's riches, it stewards it and is rich toward God and those who bear his image. And that's the danger of worldly riches. The danger of worldly riches. Back in James 5, the second half of our passage, briefly, secondly, is the reward of eternal riches the reward of eternal riches. We see that in verses 7 through 11. James gives instruction to the righteous in his audience now. He calls them brothers, as he often does throughout this great epistle. And so it's as if he's sort of shifted his attention from talking to the rich among uh, among them and now to a different group in his audience. 
Perhaps we could say it's the poor, uh, the ones being condemned and murdered. Or at least uh, the righteous and the humble uh, among these congregations. And see, while we saw three warnings, three instructions to the rich, James, as he addresses these rather humble believers, the righteous, he keeps his instruction very, very simple. Just one thing. Be patient. Be patient. You see, while the rich store up for themselves greedily with treasures on this earth, laying hold of the immediacy yet fleeting pleasures that are right in front of them, the godly, the righteous, the humble, maybe even the poor here, are patient. They wait. They know the thing that will only truly gratify their souls in eternity is found not in the things of this earth, in immediacy, but in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. Be patient. We must turn our heads and our hearts away from worldly riches as we've seen, away from all that consumes us in our existence on this earth, and we must simply wait. We must simply be patient. I wonder what you think of when you hear the word patience. Maybe you think of love, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Maybe you think of waiting in line at Ralph's behind the person with a cart full that could feed a village and you've got two items. Patience. Maybe you think of a difficult friend and the patience that you've got to have with them. Maybe you think of the 405 South. Patience. This patience here that James is talking about is It's built different. It's not of this world. It's a patience for the coming of the Lord. You see, the object of this patience makes all the difference. We are being called in this passage to be patient on God. The faithful, covenant-keeping, sure God, the one whose loving kindness is from generation to generation. We are being called to patience for the coming of His Son who has already come once before and who will come again. And so these facts broaden and deepen this sense of patience we are to cultivate here. This isn't just a general patience that we put on as Christians, although we should. This is a patience in waiting and in hope of God to fulfill His promise. And guess what? The Bible tells us God is exercising patience in this time as well. He's not delaying or testing us or sitting on His hands in this moment. 
It's a passage I quote very often, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, you may have been here at Grace on Campus for five years, or you've been here for just tonight. But if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, God is being patient with you. In a sense, for the logic of our passage in 2 Peter 3 and also in James, God is being patient in sending His Son so that you would have time to repent and to give your life to Jesus. To give up pursuits of this world's riches and find eternal riches in Jesus. We all, by nature and by choice, sin against a holy God. And we shatter the image we were made to bear in Him. And that should cause us eternal separation from Him. But God sent His Son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for that sin so that we might be restored in Christ. And in Christ we live. And in Christ we die to the world. And in Christ we will be raised one day. The reward, eternal riches in Christ. And so God is being patient with you. And we are to meet that patience with a patience of our own. This patience is all-encompassing. It's overarching. It's a temperament of forbearance we're to have. It's a long-suffering with having to bear with this Romans 8 broken world. But knowing full well that Christ will return. Verse 7 gives us a picture of a farmer. The one who waits for the harvest. He's knowing and he's trusting that both Early and late rains are both necessary for this harvest to bear fruit. And so this farmer sees beyond even just today's concerns and tasks. He has such patient trust in the outcome in this harvest. And how much more sure for us who wait, not just on the fruit of this earth to spring forth, but on the King over all this earth to return. How do you cultivate this kind of patience? Is it from drumming up some kind of feeling in our hearts or emptying your mind of worries and anxieties like a psychiatrist psychiatrist might help you do? Look at verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your For the coming of the Lord is at hand. You see, we are to firmly root our hearts in the things of the Lord. This hope for His return. Not the transitory things of this life, the fleeting pleasures of these riches that do not satisfy, but establish your hearts, James says. Plant your soul in the very promise of God to send His Son to return. This is a kind of resolute courage, a heavenward 
patience. It's what allows us to, as 2 Timothy 2 says, be patient when wronged. You see, when the rich thrive, but you can't seem to find your footing, James's encouragement in the face of all this to the righteous is to not grumble. Establish your hearts, but do not grumble at one another. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You see, instead, we ought to pursue peace with one another. Because as we wait on the Lord, the judge, the Lord himself, is standing at the door. And so while the rich withhold the wages of the poor, the poor are to be patient and wait on the Lord to judge. Even in the most unjust of circumstances, like what we saw in this passage, they will all be brought before the righteous judge in eternity. Look at 1 Peter 2. We need to see this. 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 23. It's the example of Jesus in this. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, like Jesus, we must entrust ourselves to the one who will judge justly, who is standing at the door. Uh, The one who is ready to enter the room. The one who is imminently going to come back. You see, for the righteous who are hopeless and helpless, those condemned and abused by the rich, this is Jesus. He is standing at the door. The righteous judge. And He will right all wrongs and he will make all things new in his time this is the imminency of christ's return the glorious truth that he may return at any moment for us and he will call us to be up with, up in the air with him and so we wait patiently yet so longingly for this return and as we wait what is james saying how ought we to act? Patiently. Lovingly. Peaceably. With even those who wrong us. In verse 10, James has for us an example. The prophets. God's mouthpieces to his people in the Old Testament. I think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Men who were rejected and ridiculed. Accused of lying even though they spoke On behalf of God, Uh, they were placed in stocks and chains, slapped in the face, imprisoned and held captive in cisterns, threatened with execution and put to death. Yet these godly men waited upon the Lord, waited patiently. They knew their task was to speak the truth of God and they persevered patiently, silently, suffering they remain steadfast jesus himself said in matthew 5 blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account if this happens to you jesus is saying you are blessed 
you are happy. Why? Because you have eternal riches in him. Far beyond any difficulty or disdain you endure on this earth. Finally, James gives us another example in verse 11. Job. And Job is this great figure of faith under trial who underwent the loss of everything in his life. His possessions, the people in his life, and even his own health. And yet remained steadfast in God. And the very confidence that Job had in God, we too are to have. Uh, that his character and that his promises are sure. James repeats here in verse 11 a truth we saw before in chapter 1, verse 12. You see, James says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And in chapter 1, verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, but when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Those who remain steadfast, those who wait patiently upon the Lord. And here, those who wait patiently upon the Lord to return are blessed. They're happy in God. Their hearts are established in God, knowing fully the future reward of eternal riches in Christ. And so, Grace on Campus, in view of eternity, let us take up true faith. Faith that forsakes worldly riches and waits patiently for eternal riches. There's an old hymn that Fanny Crosby wrote that I think so beautifully pictures the Christian's hope and contrasts uh, the, the hope that we have, not in the joys or the hopes of this world, but of eternal riches in Christ. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abides forever through eternal years the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul. With a savior, savior watching over me, I can sing though thunders roll. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross my trust shall be, till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. Oh, the height and depth of mercy. Oh, the length and breadth of love. Oh, the fullness of redemption. Pledge or promise of endless life above. Let's take hold not of earthly riches, but of eternal riches in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. It shows us how much we need to let go of so much we hold on to so tightly. It's a wake-up call for us, O oh God, and how much we value vain things. We value fleeting pleasures. And yet, God, we find in you the promise of Christ and his return. And so we pray humbly as your people, God, that you would... Uh, have him return and call us to yourself. But Lord, we also wait patiently, knowing that it is your patience that extends mercy to all who still need you. 
So until then, until Christ's return, uh, we ask for the gospel, the good news of eternal riches in Christ to go forth uh, in our lives and on this campus. And would you use us as your instruments of your mercy uh, toward those who need you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.